0: to dig the history podcast who wears the pants in this relationship if someone asks you this question you probably understand what they mean Who is the dominant one in the relationship? Who holds the power, the influence, the final say? From its earliest utterances, it was intended to challenge women who dared to seize too much autonomy in social relationships, and to shame men who failed to exert their dominance over women per the expectations of manliness. Is that what people today are implying when they jokingly ask about pants in a relationship? Probably not. It's certainly possible. This is still a patriarchal world, after all. But seriously, why pants? (laughs) Why do pants carry such weight? Why not a pocket watch or a bowler cap? Why not? Who has the penis in this relationship? (laughs) If that's what you really mean, why pants? The answer is a lot of things. Penises and pocket watches might be symbols of manliness as well, but few articles of clothing have so fraught a history as pants, particularly for defining gender, displaying manliness, and indicating dominance. Today, we're talking about pants. We're barely going to scratch the surface, but in the end, you'll at least know why pants are such a big deal when discussing relations between men and women. I'm Avril Earls. And I am Hermione Granger.
1: No, actually, I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins.
0: And we're your historians for this episode of DIG.
1: Let's start with the origin of pants. When people first figured out how to weave and make the cloth that would become clothes, they did start things off by wrapping a piece of fabric around each leg and Bob's your uncle. Pants. They did not. Forensic anthropologists and archaeologists have long since asserted that the first garments of any length were skirts and dresses, simple rectangular lengths of woven cloth or animal skin wrapped around the body and secured with a belt. There were also loincloths and shorter versions of the skirt that covered the genitals, as Marissa and Elizabeth will discuss in their episodes on undergarments. But pants were not a thing for a long time. They were likely invented once people started riding horses into battle— pants protected the legs from the rough hair of the horse gave more freedom of movement and protected certain tender external reproductive organs um this reminds me of uh girding your loins yes have you ever seen the 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 um there's like a infographic on how to tie up your loins no and it's exactly what you're talking about it's yeah. you know they would wear these skirts yeah. these long kind of flowing like maxi skirts mm-hmm. and they would pull up the middles of them and tie them in such a way that girded their yeah. loins and turned them into pants for running into battle huh. i'll see if i can find it and we'll post it in post the, it show notes the show
0: notes perfect or on the facebook so pants were important for the warrior life even in cultures where men continued to wear dresses and skirts as everyday wear like in the middle east or japan their warriors would have adopted some style of pants for a military uniform Janissaries, the slave soldiers of the Ottoman Empire, for example, exclusively wore some kind of trouser for the freedom of movement and battle readiness from their founding in the 13th century, whereas merchants, artisans, and most regular people continued to wear long tunics and robes throughout the early 20th century. The Middle East is a more complicated example, however, because, as we'll discuss later, Western women were inspired to start wearing bloomers after seeing Ottoman women wearing what they called Turkish trousers in the 19th century. Japan, though, is a great example because loose but discernible pants were a staple of the samurai warrior in the Tokugawa period, whereas men and women otherwise exclusively wore kimonos until, as Sarah discussed in her episode on suits, the Meiji emperor encouraged westernized clothing at the end of the 19th century. While there were still different styles and patterns for men's and women's kimonos, the contrast between the warrior's pants and the everyday man's long belted skirt or robe is quite stark.
1: We're using pants as an umbrella term for a range of clothing items that people wear to cover their bottom half, in which material wraps separately around each leg. Up until about the 16th century, this garment was more of an undergarment than a primary garment like the pants we think of today. Hose, usually wool or silk, were more like modern-day tights and made to be worn under doublets and tunics. When men's doublets got really short, the codpiece was added to cover the exposed genitals because hose only reached to the upper thigh. By the 17th century, hose were effectively phased out in Europe and the U.S. by breeches. Breeches, as a term, has been used to refer to both an outer garment and an undergarment. Knee breeches, in particular, are probably what you're used to seeing in paintings of men from the 16th through the 19th century. They were close-fitting bottoms that fastened around the knee or calf with a buckle. If they were for riding, then they would be flared around the thigh for more ease of movement. Breeches are still in use today for things like equestrian sports or royal ceremonies in England. But in general, breeches were replaced by trousers in the 19th century in both Europe and the U.S. Feudal Europe was more or less constantly engaged in some
0: kind of warfare. And this is one of the reasons the feudal system was so effective. As a king, you granted land to vassals in return for military service, so you wouldn't be getting much bang for your buck if you didn't call them up to fight in wars. Because pants were essential to effective mounted warfare, they were associated with power and masculinity in early modern Western Europe. They became the standard of male dress, with kings and princes donning the breeches and their subordinates and subjects following suit. European colonists took their breaching preferences with them to settle in the Americas, and by the 18th century, even the Russian emperor, Peter the Great, had seen the power of pants. In 1701, he issued a decree on Western dress. Western dress shall be worn by all the boyars, members of our councils and of our court. Gentry of Moscow secretaries, provincial gentry, gosti, government officials, stroutsi. Members of the guild purveying for our household, citizens of Moscow of all ranks, and residents of provincial cities, excepting the clergy and peasant tillers of the soil. The upper dress shall be a French or Saxon cut, and the lower dress waistcoat, trousers, boots, shoots, shoes, shoots, <laughs> shoes, and hats shall be of the German type. Like the womenfolk of all ranks and their children shall wear Western dresses, hats, jackets, and underwear, under vests and petticoats, and shoes. From now on, no one of the above mentioned is to wear Russian dress or Circassian coats, sheepskin sco- coats, or Russian peasant coats.
1: That was a good impression. Thanks.
0: That's
1: my Russian accent. <laughs> Most cultures have gender-specific clothing. In Europe and the U.S., men wore pants. Women continued to wear dresses or long skirts. This was standardized in rituals that helped to define male and female spheres. From the 16th century through the late 19th century, the first rite of passage for boys was their breaching. Babies and small children were effectively reared solely by the women of the household. Mother, older sisters, servants, spinster aunties, grandmothers, etc., Little girls, of course, remained in this domain for the rest of their lives. But there was a threshold for little boys. Eventually, they had to go out and join the male workforce in the fields or towns, or be taken under their aristocratic father's wing to learn how to ride, hunt, and fight. On the day when that education began, the boy received his first pair of breeches. As Lawrence Stern, a 19th century writer, described the day his father decided it was time for his breeching, he wrote... "'Tis high time to take this young creature out of these women's hands and put him into those of a private governor.'" It was a jaunty occasion. Family and neighbors were invited to celebrate the little boy's passage into manhood, eat some cake, and might give him a few small coins to fill his little boy pockets. Mother would lament the loss of her sweet baby, and father would rejoice that his heir and legacy was finally at his side. Baby boy might not find the restrictive new pants all that thrilling, though. As another 19th century memoirist, Samuel Coleridge, wrote, The boy did not roll and tumble over and over in his old, joyous way. No, it was an eager and solemn gladness, as if he felt it to be an awful area in his life. It was an important milestone, and the little boy's life would most certainly change. Up until the breaching, though, all little children wore petticoats, effectively dresses of
0: undyed muslin or wool that could easily be hemmed as the child grew and could be passed down from one child to the next. Though children from aristocratic families would have the income to create new dresses for every child and use particular laces, colors, and garnishes that would allow people to distinguish between little boy and little girl, i.e. pink for boys and blue for girls, the petticoats of youth were smart, economical and simple. No pants to unbuckle to get a dirty diaper or to pull down when potty training. Just babies running around in cute little dresses. The significance and silliness of the breaching was embedded into 19th century culture. You can see this in a late 19th century poem from a children's book of verse. You may be sure that I was glad I marched right up and kissed her, then gave my bibs and petticoats to, and all to baby sister. I never whine now. I'm so fine, and I don't get into messes. For Mama says, if I am bad, she'll put me back in dresses. Aww, Precious. So cute. It's not often that we say, you know, who did things right? Those early modern Europeans. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> so true. <laughs> but seriously, this petticoats for all the babies is probably the most sensible and practical thing we've ever abandoned as a culture capitalism
1: yeah 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 as someone who changes a significant number of diapers and has over the past several years that would be so much easier <laughs> Pass out yeah in the 16th and 17th centuries boys wouldn't get breached until they were seven or eight years old by the 18th century particularly among the middle and upper classes the age started dropping in the 19th century boys were being breached at around three and not all were thrilled about breaching either For George Nicholson, a printer and vegetarianism advocate, so, you know, up there in the ranks of Sylvester Graham and John Harvey Kellogg, breaching boys was bad. Like so many 19th century philosophers, Nicholson had particular theories about how external and internal forces shape and inflame the sexual passion, and, of course, by extension, immorality. According to Nicholson, putting boys in breachers was right up there with eating meat. Writes Nicholson, in his the boy was easy and free to gamble at his pleasure. In his breeches, he is, one, pent up and shackled, and by way of compensation, his mind is stuffed with opinion and folly. He bears the burdens of his breeches without murmur because he is taught to believe his breeches fine, honorable, and manly. Two, during the first and second year, the boy can neither button nor unbutton his breeches, and he is continually in a sad condition. Three, to make water, he must pull and strain his little pipe to get clear of his breeches. For a year and more, he is unable to perform this operation himself. Children, maids, and valets lend their assistance in pulling and playing with his private parts. By this pulling, handling, and playing, the boy... And the girl, too, who frequently assists, and to whom the innocent boy often tries to return the friendly office, acquire an intimate acquaintance with genitals. And this is one source of that hurtful practice, which Tiso has proved to be so injurious to the human race. From the third year of his life, sometimes earlier, the boy wears breeches, which in general are made of wool. Every avenue of the beneficent air to the testicles is shut up. They are not cooled, not braced, not quieted. Oh, good gravy. (laughs) He's very worked up about this. Uh, The Tissot that Nicholson refers to there is a Swiss Calvinist Protestant neurologist, physician, professor, and Vatican advisor who, in 1760, published Le Onanisme, a tract on the dangers of masturbation. Yeah, and so, I mean, just to... Go back to this quote here for a second. He's essentially saying that in, because he can't go to the bathroom by himself and he needs assistance, you know, getting his penis out to pee, it's like training him and having his genitals handled. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to handle his genitals more often. It's like awakening him to the fact that it feels nice when people touch your genitals, I guess. Yes. Um,
0: that is his point. Yeah. It's not wrong. Probably.
1: What? That it feels nice to have people handle your genitals? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess if they're doing it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> Not if they grab you by your and <laughs> <p-ty. laughs> They're like,
0: here's how you pee." <laughs> this is actually a really interesting confluence. On the one hand, pants are an important symbol of masculinity in defining maleness. In many Western nations, it was even illegal for women to wear pants. But Nicholson's point also gets to the heart of what New England Puritans and later 19th century Victorians thought about masculinity. That self-control, not masturbating, was also important to appropriate manhood. And a man's ability to be his own master, to control his urges, is what set him apart from baser creatures, like women. Hmm. The fact that Nicholson wanted little boys to keep wearing dresses to preserve their masculinity is an amusing contradiction of the period. But if it wasn't for contradictions, I suspect we'd never see societal change at all. Right.
1: But in between the New England Puritans and the respectable Victorians, the 18th century was rife with amusement, perhaps self-effacing, surrounding the centrality of pants as symbols of masculinity. One satirist wrote a silly history of the Noble Order of the breeches in 1750 or so. This pokes fun at the various royal orders, including the Noble Order of the Garter, to which knighted British men belonged. This order, the anonymous author asserts, was instituted by Adam in a short period of time after the creation and appears to be founded on that most amiable virtue called modesty, for he no sooner arrived at the knowledge of good and evil, but he immediately made himself breeches to cover those parts he was directed by decency to conceal. But as arts and manufactures had not in those earlier times been established, he was obliged to convert the badges of Ensign of his order from fig leaves, the most proper materials those times could produce.
0: Pants, breeches, and trousers were exclusive to the masculine domain. Women's attire in the 18th and 19th century, petticoats, skirts or dresses, with or without hoops and padding, corsets, etc. sucked. (laughs) It was not particularly convenient for moving around, performing the tasks of physical labor or breathing. This was challenging enough in the early modern period when women's labor was largely utilized at home, in the family shop, working at the family trade or on the farm. As Elizabeth discussed in her episode on shirtwaists, clothing for women, even poor and working class women, got heavier and more restrictive throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. This made labor nearly impossible for those women who had to turn to industrial work to meet, their, to meet labor demand and support their families. The Industrial Revolution needed women in the factories, in manufacturing and coal mines, but wearing pants, dressing like a man, was heavily restricted. There was a law passed in France in 1800 that required women to ask permission of local authorities to dress like a man. That's so that they could go and work in the factories or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that law wasn't formally abolished until 2013. Oh my gosh. Lady pants in France. That's quite, that's wild. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Elizabeth also discussed the dress reform movement of the 19th century, which was responding to a lot of these concerns. Women, like Amelia Bloomer, a temperance advocate and suffragist, adopted pants as a political act of resistance. The Turkish trousers that Bloomer made famous, or what we call bloomers now in her honor, were embraced by many suffragists, including Elizabeth Smith Miller, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. In the 19th century, women were wearing between 10 and 12 pounds of petticoat, plus their stays, a whalebone corset, full skirted dresses that reached to the ground, sweeping up dirt and debris from country roads and unpaved streets. Trousers offered mobility and were considered by their proponents to be more hygienic. Though first popularized in the 1850s, the bloomers were embraced throughout the Western world in the 1890s by the advent and spread of the bicycle. For middle class women, the bloomer and the bicycle were a literal emancipation after centuries of oppressive gowns and jerking carriage rides suffragists as students of history are surely already aware were quite controversial in their time and intentionally so they could not shake up the status quo which relegated them to the private sphere and denied them a voice in their nations across the western world uh without making waves wearing pants was a most decidedly rebellious act for them i just want to interject here as as the um 19th century u.s person yeah mm-hmm. that um bloomers made a huge stir i mean they they gained a ton of attention as they were sort of intended to um but they didn't stay in use for very long they do have this resurgence with with bicycling Mm -hmm. but you know people like elizabeth katie stanton and susan B. anthony aren't riding bicycles like they're they're very kind of like not necessarily upper crossed but they're upper middle class they're very kind of um appearance minded and so elizabeth Cady stanton does try she wears bloomers for a short period Mm -hmm. in like the 1850s um late 1850s 1860s or something no maybe it's right in the 1850s but um it doesn't last very long she goes back to wearing sort of traditional women's clothing Mm -hmm. um so it was a very political act i mean almost to the point of it was over the top, right? Even yeah. even some of the most ardent feminists wouldn't go so far as to wear bloomers. Wear pants. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, for other women, though, wearing pants was a mode of survival. When the Industrial Revolution moved labor and production out of the home, many women, and of course children, had to join their husbands, fathers, and brothers in the mines and factories just to make ends meet. Though they were paid an unconscionable fraction of what male laborers were paid, their meager wages contributed to the overall household income. In the 1840s, the British government set up a commission to investigate the conditions in the mines and collieries, specifically looking at the role of children in the mines. And while the children were the initial focus, the women in the mines quickly took center stage, as English gentlemen looked on in horror at what was happening in the English coal mines.
1: There was a general discomfort in Britain at the time with the idea of little children laboring in dangerous and unhealthy conditions. This is what prompted the Mines and Collieries Commission in the first place. But it was the observations of women doing men's work in the coal mines that shocked the investigators and dominated the reports of the commission. I can you know, just imagine these Victorian men in their fine three-piece suits fluttering a handkerchief over their mouths to keep out the coal dust um, you know, out of their refined middle-class lungs and in revulsion at seeing immorality of women doing men's work. Coal mining is dirty, hard labor. With little automation and machinery, as was the case in mid-19th century Britain, all of the hardest work was done by people. Pickaxing the deposits, loading up carts, and hauling the heavily laden carts up steep mine shafts to the surface for sorting. All of this was labor performed by men, women, and children, all employees of coal mining companies. It was hot, the air was saturated with coal dust, it was literally backbreaking work.
0: But the commissioners weren't necessarily concerned with the work itself or the ridiculously low wages women were being paid. Instead, they were scandalized that the women working in the mines were stripped to the waist, like all the men and boys around them, and wearing, yes, you guessed it, pants. I just want to interrupt. They were stripped to the waist. Bare-breasted. They were bare-breasted. Really? Yep. It was too f***ing hot down there.
1: But you have swinging appendages.
0: It was, I mean, they were probably fairly emaciated because they were malnourished and impoverished. Um, They're working so hard. They're working so hard. Holy sh! Yeah.
1: I can understand why these middle class men were taken aback. Breasts, breasts, yeah. and pants. Yeah. Um. Not all of them,
0: but the ones who were, you know, deepest in the mine where it was the hottest. Yeah. They were. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't really see anything because it'd be covered in to- coal dust. True. Like their bodies were just. Be- yeah. Yeah. Blackened. Right. So as the commission as the reports started rolling into the commission office, the stories got picked up by local newspapers. The Halifax Guardian reported that coal mining was quote taking women woman from her proper sphere and degrading her to the dress of man and the drudgery of the mine. Pants, hard work, and wage earning. These were all a man's sphere. The unholy product of industrialization was bare-breasted and pantalooned for all the world to see, (laughs) and the British government could not stand it. While the commission was set up to investigate child labor, women became the focus of the resulting Mines and Collieries Act. The bill went through the House of Commons with almost no discussion after an impassioned speech by Lord Anthony Ashley, who headed the commission. It met more resistance in the upper chambers, however, because the act would prevent women from working in the mines at all. Um, And those who opposed it, individuals like Josephine Baker, who also fought tooth and nail against the Contagious Diseases Act, were concerned that women deprived of wage labor in the mines would be forced to turn to other immoral work, a.k.a. prostitution.
1: Mm. The final report included a number of quite graphic woodcut illustrations depicting the labor conditions. Though challenged and revised in the House of Lords, the resulting act did indeed ban women from working below ground in the coal mines. It also banned boys under the age of 10 from working in the mines, a change from the original 12-year-old threshold of the act as it was presented in the lower chamber. The members of Parliament serving in the House of Lords were apparently far more susceptible to the desires of the mine owners who capitalized on the labor of both women and children, who received far lower wages than men and cared less about the morality of women and children laboring in the first place.
0: So the final act itself was just full of loopholes. Women were banned from going below ground, but continued to work in the collieries, sorting and all that stuff. Um, The public, though, became fascinated with these pants-wearing women, who continued to don the breeches in order to to do their work effectively. These pit-brow lasses, as they were called, were made famous by the news reports on the parliamentarian discussions of the Mines and Collieries Act. Tourists started heading to mine country to take pictures of these women in pants. They were a novelty, a sideshow. By the late 1840s, these women were reported to wear their pants under long skirts, which they could tuck up into their waistband while at
1: work, and then drop to conceal their offensive pants on their walk home. In the United States, one young woman made headlines in Boston when she went about town in men's clothing and was arrested for donning the breeches. Emma Snodgrass had worked on a steamship in the Mississippi and found that dressing like a man earned her higher wages, surprise, surprise. But her penchant for pants brought her all kinds of legal troubles, of which the Boston Herald and the New York Times-Daily simply could not get enough. An article on November thirtieth, 1852, the New York Times-Daily reported, Miss Emma Snodgrass, a young woman of 17, belonging to New York, has a second time been taken into custody by the police of Boston for donning the breeches. The first time of her appearing in male apparel was, it will be remembered, when she applied for and obtained a situation as clerk at the clothing establishment of John Simmons & Company, Water Street. From whence, on the discovery of her real sex, she was taken to the police office, and thence to the house of her father, a respectable city official in New York. A day or two since, she has returned to Boston and in female apparel, put up at the Washington Coffee House. Yesterday, she left the house, but soon after returned, dressed in a frock coat, cap, vest, and pants. The barkeeper at once recognized her and informed the chief of police of her whereabouts. What What her motive may be for thus obstinately rejecting the habiliments of her own sex is not known.
0: In a variety of news stories following her various arrests, she was taken into custody some like half dozen times. Emma Snodgrass is referred to as the foolish girl who goes about in virile toggery and the wanderer in man's apparel and various other more unflattering names. Finally, in 1856, the quote unfeminine freak, a girl in man's clothes, was arrested and charged with vagrancy. Charlie is a gallus character and while in court was the observed of all observers he we mean she heard the complaint preferred with apparent indifference and replied to it by a simple plea of not guilty and was then sentenced to two months imprisonment on blackwell's island charlie chews tobacco with ease and enjoys a mile havana her teeth, though, are good and white and appear to be an object of great care. Her face is full, plump, and smooth, and her hair, short and black, is neatly arranged. Charlie's tile is a la mode, shines like a mirror, and is usually worn a jaunt as it becomes a gay young man about town. Her coat and, and br pants are new, neat, <laughs> and well fitting.
1: Breeches. Pants.
0: Yeah. pants. Can't even say <laughs> breeches.
1: Yeah. The journalist cheekily hints here at breeches though largely out of style, they would have still carried specific connotations that readers would pick up on. Here was Emma Snodgrass, alias Charlie, who dared parade about as a man. The offense stretched beyond donning the breeches, though. Quote, Charlie has broken some little hearts in his, we mean, her, day, without intending any such calamity, but generally, by a proper method, succeeded in getting rid of the lovers. There was one exception, a confiding creature, who for some time would not believe her story as to how things stood. It was, very, it was very hard to convince her. But when the true state of affairs was made apparent, she became inconsolable and refused all offers of comfort from another source. Charlie says she is retired to a convent, but Charlie is a wag. In comparison with our coal miners,
0: though, Emma Snodgrass used breeches in a far more effective way. When asked by a reporter, but why do you dress in male attire? She replied, well, because I can get along better, can get more wages. A poor girl, here Charlie's voice showed more feminine and her eyes, big eyes grew bigger and milder, has no chance. I acted wrong once, I don't deny it, but I didn't like to, and it was to prevent the necessity of continuing to act bad that I put on boys' clothes. I am not a vagrant, never have been, and never will be so long as I have hands to work. See there, my hands are hard. Harder and bigger than yours. That looks like work. Yes, my hands are big and homely too. They were little once when I was living at home with my mother. But then there is no use crying about it, is there? I have roughed it so long and I may as well be rough. All I want is that folks will let me alone. I can get along. Unlike the women of the English coal mines, bare-breasted and covered from head to toe in coal dust, Emma Snodgrass was able to use pants to disguise her identity and circumvent the sexist devaluation of female labor. Until, that is, she got caught.
1: Right. So obviously there's a lot going on here. She was cross-dressing. That was an offense in and of itself. There's an insinuation in this report that Snodgrass may have had some sexual affairs with other women. That, too, was an offense. For the coal miners, wearing pants was a mode of survival, and when discovered, the British government sought to protect those women from the indecency of wearing pants and working side-by-side, bare-chested, with men. But those women were not seeking to live as men, only to work as men— For Snodgrass, wearing pants was part of the masculine identity that she created for herself and also a mode of survival. But the government officials in the U.S. did not see her donning of the breeches as something society forced her to do in order to survive. They saw it as her deception, her wrongdoing, and shaming and punishing her was their way of protecting society from her. Ultimately, in both cases, though, the powers that be are doing more than policing Pants. The impact of the Mines and Colleries Act on English coal mining women, the American prosecution of Emma Snodgrass, these are glaring instances of the regulation of women's bodies. What parts are allowed or not allowed to be seen in public, what articles of clothing they are allowed to wear, what labor they're allowed to perform.
0: And pants in particular but also what women wearing or not wearing pants represents as a mode of policing and controlling women's bodies is not a 19th century problem or an 18th century problem or a 16th, 16th century problem. In 1939, a woman in Los Angeles went to jail for wearing pants to court. Women in the U.S. Senate were banned from wearing pants on the Senate floor until the 1993 Pantsuit Rebellion overthrew the formal rule. 1993. 1993. 1993. women in some countries are still unable to wear pants in 2009 lubna hussein a sudanese journalist was fined for public indecency because she was wearing green slacks in public in that case she was actually sort of fortunate to only be fined the maximum punishment was 40 lashes Mm. when she refused to pay the fine she was taken to jail for wearing pants In 2009. In 2017, the LPGA in the U.S. issued a new rule. That's the Ladies Pro Golfing Association. Mm -hmm. uh, Issued a new rule that will fine women up to $1,000 for wearing leggings or plunging necklines while golfing.
1: You would be fined.
0: I don't go I don't wear I wear shorts when I go. <laughs> this is not a case of once upon a time. this is an ongoing thing mm-hmm. um, and those are just instances of official legislative action regulating women's bodies. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we could talk for a million years about the informal and formal ways women's bodies are constantly being regulated but we won't <laughs> because this episode is about that one quaint fairly misogynist but otherwise harmless phrase, who does wear the pants in this relationship? And women of the world, it's you. It's all of you. Put on your breeches. Hitch up your pantaloons. Keep wearing your pants. We will not go quietly into the night dresses. Wear the pants now. And we will keep fighting until every woman who wants to wear pants can wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> I give up. You know, um, this, this point about Women being literally punished for wearing pants makes me think, um, you know, that of course this is about policing policing women's bodies. But I think there are ways in which policing clothing also has to do um, with policing sexuality. Mm-hmm. Because I was while I was getting ready to record these episodes, I was thinking about you know your the the topic that you wrote about and researched about obviously pants um, and trying to think of like examples of the opposite happening, you know, of, of people being arrested, men being arrested or for getting in trouble clothes. for wearing a dresses. dresses or oh, a skirt yeah. or something. And I remembered that when I was in middle school or high school, there was, I remember there being a debate in one of my classes. I want to say I was in seventh grade. So I was like 13 or something. Mm-hmm. There was a debate in one of my classes about why if girls could wear pants, boys couldn't wear skirts. And, you know, the the consensus of most of the kids in the class was, you know, you'll but you'll be gay, mm. right? Um, and I had one friend who, who, of course, I had a huge crush on. His, his name was Nate Barrett, and his parents were hippies. And he was always kind of that person who was always pushing the envelope. And he said, well, I'm going to wear a skirt to, to school to prove that you all know that I'm not gay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wear a skirt to school, and I'm going to show you that boys can wear whatever they want. And he did. And mm-hmm. he showed up wearing, a like, a maxi skirt. And he borrowed from his sister, and he got detention. Yeah. He was in... He made it in... The
0: school gave him detention. Yes.
1: The, he wasn't... It wasn't his friends who were punishing him mm. by making fun of him. He made it into, like, his locker and homeroom. And then he was declared a distraction. And he was he was forced to change and was given detention.
0: Yeah. I mean, the construction of pants and dresses as gender-specific, right? That's that's it too because gender is inextricable from sexuality right. in, in the western world right um, i'm even thinking of the 19th century with the bolton and park scandal where two aristocratic young men who liked to cross-dress got caught. They got arrested. Um, and at first it was being reported really widely in newspapers. And this is the work of Charles Upchurch, who's a British historian. Um, it was being reported really widely in the newspapers because, you know, it was funny. These two men, they published pictures of them, um, cause they had taken professional photographs of them, you know, all do- done up in, in drag. Mm-hmm. Um, until the investigators on the case started finding evidence that there was a homosexual element to the relationship, oh, okay. and then it became a problem of this isn't just like fun, having a good time, cross dressing. Mm-hmm. There's this n- new element that is challenging the very fabric of aristocratic British manliness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it goes both ways, absolutely. Yeah, and we got on you know our so our feminist soapbox here at the end because it's.
1: Because we're spe- specifically when talking about pants and yeah. wear, the ability to wear pants, the right to wear pants. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is very much a feminist issue. But I think it is. I mean, obviously, it is also a feminist issue to, you know, advocate for people to wear whatever clothing makes their body right. comfortable, mm-hmm. whether that's men wearing dresses or women's clothing and of any sort. Right, mm-hmm. that's also a feminist issue. Um, I mean. It's interesting now that you bring it up. I'm thinking of all of these examples of people being arrested for, like, I mean, the the part of why the Stonewall Riot Mm -hmm. and the um, Compton's Cafeteria Riot is because you know drag queens and people that were cross-dressing were considered, you know, public public um, breaking public decency laws. Um, there's also a case um, – there's a couple cases that come out of the American Civil War of women who cross-dressed to in order to enlist mm-hmm. in at least the Union Army we know about. I think I, – I know there's also one um, Confederate woman that we know about, at, at the very least, yeah. I mean, that have come through history with still evidence. Um, but one of them was a, a doctor in the mm. Union um, – in the Union Medical Corps. <laughs> Um, which I should know the name of that. Um, but it's called everyone calls it something different. But anyway, there's one woman named Mary Walker, who was a doctor in the Union Medical Corps, who um, wore pants, not a not a military uniform, necessarily, but wore pants because it made her job easier. Yeah. And then she just kept wearing pants for the rest of her life. Yeah. Um, and people, you know, gave her a very hard time for mm. that. Um. Yeah. There's a, also, who's the other one? A- Albert Cashier is the other mm-hmm. Union uh, um soldier who continues to not only wear pants in Albert Cashier's case, but live as a man, presented yeah. as a man for mm-hmm. the rest of his life. Or I'm going to use male pronouns because that's how he presented. Mm-hmm. But.
0: No, there's a bajillion examples. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, I mean... If we were to talk about all of the ways that clothing is policed for everyone, I mean, it would be impossible to nail it down into an episode.
0: You yeah. Know? No. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's but it's also interesting to think about how those assumptions in the West have been essentialized mm-hmm. because obviously wearing tunics, long tunics and um, effectively robes, kimonos, that's still traditional wear in like japan Mm -hmm. um there it's still everyday wear in india in in the middle east Mm -hmm. and pants are have different meanings in different places i think Mm -hmm. it's fascinating
1: yeah it really it really is fascinating i love some of the stories of like people like some of the early not even like hardcore feminists but just like women even in the 50s and 60s being like no, I'm going to wear pants because they're easier. Like, there's mm-hmm. a story from the Dick Van Dyke show. Have you ever watched the Dick Van Dyke show? No. I love the Dick Van Dyke show. I'm not Dyke 94. Show. It's like, it's so adorable. But Mary Tyler Moore, mm. when it was like her debut role as Dick Van Dyke's wife, and she sort of had this signature style, which was... Um, like capri length ankle length pants mm-hmm. and flats yeah and this wasn't new i mean audrey yep. hepburn had been wearing that for you know a couple decades before the 60s or at least yeah. a decade and a half or so um but the the television networks were like I don't think that we can show you wearing pants in every episode. And it became like a big sticking point between Mm -hmm. her and the showrunners that she was going to be wearing pants in almost every episode. I think there's a couple of episodes where it shows her wearing a dress like for a party or something. Mm -hmm. But this was like a a major, like it was a concession that they made to her that she was going to be allowed to wear these ankle pants. Because they were like, (gasps) how can we... It's kind of like along the lines of how in fifties and sixties television shows they had to show twin beds. hmm Even though like I don't really think that many people slept in twin beds. I don't know. I think side more by side. I think of. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. It's sad. It sounds sort of nice to me. And then sometimes. did they
0: push the beds together when they wanted to bone or did they just have sex in separate beds?
1: Like So this is also this is also something I I mentioned this show before in my episode about suits, but this show on Amazon Prime called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I'm like sort of obsessed with it because I just finished watching it. But there is a scene where she's describing how all her life, you know, every couple of weeks she would hear this scraping sound in her parents coming from her parents' bedroom and she could never figure out what it was until she was an adult and she walked and she heard it and she walked into her parents' bedroom because it was like nine o'clock in the morning and the door was open. It wasn't like she was busting in. Mm Mm-hmm. And her parents were pushing the beds back <laughs> apart. And she was Aww. like, oh, that scraping sound that I thought was like a ghost was actually evidence that my parents were boning. They were us. doing I, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with pants, but. <laughs> oh, God. So funny. Um, that's good. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and. Pinterest. Pinterest at dig underscore history. And um hope you've enjoyed this episode and leave us a rating review on iTunes if it's a nice one. Yeah, we don't need your mean ones. Yeah, please don't. But you know whatever.
1: You do you though, you, you do know. you.
0: Bye. All right, bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Mazerick, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Mercer Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening.
1: Have I ever said Bob's your uncle in yes. my entire life? You have.
0: I've heard you say it. No, <laughs>
1: yeah, you haven't. But in the middle. Yeah. Shines like a
0: mirror. Mirror? mirror, Mirror? Oh my god, why is it mirror? Up until the breaching, though. No. Up no. until the.
1: <laughs> By extension, immortal. immortality. Immortality. <laughs> I still hate it that you make me say my last name. Why? Because I never do. Elizabeth does. Me and Marissa never do. I never put it. I think it's, they know who we are. Anyway, okay. It was a jaunty occasion. Family. Jaunty Walker. <laughs> <laughs> no, let
0: see if I get my Russian accent. I have no idea what Russian are like. No. West on, no, that's no. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs>